Welcome back to Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And our guest is Dougie Brimson, author of In the Know, and he's written films, Green Street, various books, non-fiction, traditional publishing, indie publishing, all sorts of things. One of the things you've talked about is, so In the Know is, it's an e-book primarily, isn't it? Well, it was going to be. Um, but it turned out being, uh, it came out in print and in ebook at the same time. I mean, as happened, because of the lockdown, we had all kinds of issues potentially with distribu- distribution through Amazon. My publishers ended up selling paperbacks direct, which was great. But when the ebook came out, it came out on the same day. I was quite surprised by the success of the paperback. I, I'd always, I've always got one eye on the ebook world first. Um, it's nice to have paperbacks, but the benefits of ebooks is A, I earn more money from them, and B, I get paid faster. But I've always been quite open. I write because that's how I earn my living. You know, the faster money gets to me, the more time it gives me to write more books to hopefully make more money. Yeah, I love the ebook world. I mean, ebooks really sold, resurrected my career. The headline had basically given me all the rights back to all our books when the ebook revolution kicked in, literally within a matter of days um, of me getting the letter from Headline to say the rights from the crew had reverted back to me. Um, I got a letter from a company asking me if I'd be interested in putting an ebook out. I sent them the geezer's guide to football and it went through the roof. And I just said, here you go, is my entire backlist. Just go with it. And it went crazy. So uh, I'm very pro ebook. The ebooks thing is very interesting because I know a bit like you when ebooks first came along, I was a little bit skeptical because I kind of assumed that, like a lot of people, that you know, well, who's going to go out and buy a specific device to read books on when you can just buy the book, you know? Because everyone's talking about Kindles and there were other things that were floating around on the market. But of course, the the genius was when they developed the apps so that anyone could read it on their phone, their tablets, anything at all. Now, of course, yeah, I mean, people and and the other thing is, you buy a paperback. You know, say one of your paperbacks, you read it once, you think, yeah, I enjoyed that, and you've either got to find storage for it or you take it down the charity shop. And whereas with the ebook, you've got it there, it takes no room up, and you can read it again later on if you want to. And and I think that's been the big difference. Once once the, the usability of ebooks became very, very easy and people saw the advantages, don't be wrong, I still love the feel of a real book, but I buy a lot of ebooks these days and I buy a lot of real books and, and you know, it's probably about fifty fifty. And I think it, it put a rocket under publishers to some extent. You think that they'd be trying to broaden out the market a bit more and, and and try and find more people to sell to. And if anything, they seem to have gone the other way. They seem to have gone they, they're very inward looking. That goes back to what we were saying before. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's this pinch point of what sells and what doesn't sell. One of my great regrets, actually, is that I, I a few years ago, I had a chance to start my own imprint for literally lad-lit stuff. And I, I, I was wrapped up in a movie at the time and I never did it. And by the time I'd finished this movie and various other stuff, it was a bit too late. But I wish I'd done it now. Who knows? The publishing world is the most bizarre world. Entertainment full stop. Trust me, commissioning in television is just the same at the moment. Very hard to get anything new, original into television. They just They just look at it from an accountant's point of view. You know, will this sell? Is it a market we already understand? Is it something? Is it like something that's already popular? In which case, yes. If it's something weird, new, unusual, uh, breaks new ground, who oh, a bit scared. You know, it, it's happening everywhere. It's funny, when they put something out that's more traditional, 
like when they did the old Dad's Armies, when they redid the Dad's Army scripts. Yeah. And they were massive hits. And you've, no one seems to be thinking, hang on a minute, there's a market here. Maybe the truth is that we have had our time in the sun and it's new generations well, are coming up and it's their turn. Yeah, but we're still here. We're still buying, you know, I'm, I'm 61. I'm still buying books. You know, I'm still reading scripts. I'm still watching TV. I'm still going to the movies. I probably go more to the movies now than I ever have. You know, if you go to the movies in the afternoon, as I do sometimes, you know, there'll be a third fall of old age pensioners. Yeah, where are the movies for them? And one of the criticisms I hear a lot, and you'll know working in TV, one of the discussions I have quite a lot is about um, older actors and older actresses who nobody is writing for. Mm. Yet the reality is there's people like me who are writing scripts for them. It's the commissioning editors who aren't taking them on. Because I agree. They, don't, they don't think there's a market for them. And yet you look at stuff like Mrs. Brown's Boys, which is through the roof. And who is the, who is the primary market for stuff like Mrs. Brown's Boys? It's older generations. And it's just, I know. why do you not we, marry these two? We keep hearing that, you know, it's what we're after now is the demographics, the YouTube generation. They want everything in little 15 minute bites. They want everything this, everything that. And, and yet you look at this lockdown and one of the huge winners from the lockdown has been Talking Pictures TV, showing nothing but old movies. And, and it's, its ratings have, have like quadrupled because people are stuck at home and they think, oh, I remember that film. I saw that when I was younger. Yeah, I'm going to watch that yeah. now. And they've been showing loads of the old, I mean, I say Ealing comedies, but comedies from that era. They've been showing those. They've been showing Laurel and Hardy's. They've been showing old thrillers. And it's bloody brilliant. I love it. And they've got big audiences. I watch one film on there every day, at least. Yeah. It comes back to pinch points again. Where is, Where are the people who are going to take these risks in inverted commas and start producing more mainstream stuff for that market? And, I, you know, I know I go on about working class folks and stuff like that. But there are generations who are being criminally ignored, not just by publishing. As someone who's been a working class bloke and has been successful, who would you recommend or who's coming up? Or are, is there anyone that you've mentored or anything like that? Christ, no, I don't. I mean, I tend not to mentor anybody. I, I, give lots, I get lots of people asking me how to do it. You know, I get people, you know, how do I get an agent? How do I get this? Don't worry about that. Because the first question they'll ask you is, what have you got to show me? Yeah. Make sure you've got something to show me. And that something has to be a manuscript and it has to be properly edited and it has to be properly formatted because you're going to get one shot. Mm. And that's, that's my first rule to everybody. Finish what you're writing and make sure it's right to be presented. A couple of people I'm encouraging at the moment to crack on and do it, but I'll, I'll you know, I'll point them at my publisher, Caffeine Nights. Oh, I'll just say self-publish. There's no, no shame in self-publishing. If, if you're writing to get rich, then do something else. Because it ain't, it's not going to happen. <laughs> We've got some listener questions. So a question from Stan. Can you tell us some stories? This is Stan, a fellow Watford fan. Can you give us some stories about some of the actors that have been in your films? And he particularly mentioned Stephen Burkov and, as I said earlier, Elijah Wood were, and Charlie Hunnam were in Green Street. Oh, my God, this is really risky now. I mean, I, I, I only met Stephen Burkov once on the set of Top Dog, but I'd met him for something before. Uh, he came in all like, 
almost in a pair of slippers and the usual mad, bizarre actor thing. Really powerful blow, you know, it's just a powerful character. I mean, my favorite person I've worked with in all these movies, and I've worked with him twice now, is Leo Gregory, who played Bover in Green Street, and Billy in Top Dog. And um, Leo is a, an amazing character, and w but when you go out with him, it will literally be five minutes before someone will come up to him and say, oh, you're Bover from Green Street. And he's, um, he's so patient. He has photos taken with everybody and gives them autographs and all that sort of crap. And I always say to him, do you not get pissed off with this? And he said, Green Street was like 15 years ago and they still remember me. How can I be pissed off about that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a fantastic approach. Although I do say to him, you know, I cre created you. Don't forget that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the God who actually gave you a career. That makes you Frankenstein. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he's, I've had that sentiment <laughs> before. And he's, we've been out before and he said, this is the bloke who actually wrote Green Street. And it's completely indifferent to me. It's just like all about him. That's always the way. That's always the way. Well, you had a double whammy there because you, you were working with Martin Kemp there as well, weren't you? Martin's the most amazing, amazing bloke. He, he is, in fact, I'd say he is so nice. He's sickeningly nice. He, you know, it's impossible yeah, not to like him. <laughs> and, and he's so, he's so hardworking. When he came on board Top Dog, I got his phone call saying, look, I've got the script. I've got some notes. So I was shit. It was like the word every writer dreads. I've got notes. notes. Yeah. So he said, look, come over to my house and we'll go for him. So he gives me this address. So I drive over to Rickmansworth, which is literally 10 miles away, to this mansion behind big gates. Go in and his daughter's there, Harley. She sends me immediately round to the tradesman's entrance, which I thought was charming. But, <laughs> I, but I, they were filming in the hall. I didn't realise that. I found out later on. And then I meet Shirley, who was like my crush when I was Oh, Pepsi kid, and Shirley, you know, Shirley, yeah. She's super sweet. And then he comes in and we have a chat and, uh, you know, it's the first time I've met him, really. And then we sat down for three hours and he redlined pretty much every line in my script. And I was devastated, absolutely devastated. I said, well, look, I'll go away and I'll, I'll just start this rewrite. And he said, before you go, he said, you do realise that what you've written here is brilliant, don't you? And I said, well, why didn't you tell me that before you started ripping it apart? <laughs> Otherwise, like, crushing my soul. And working with him was brilliant. And he was, as I, you know, this goes back to something else I said. When we started to do the fight scenes, he made it plain to everybody. If you, because we brought in a lot of football lads to do all the fight scenes and the pub scenes and all that. And he said to them all, if you see anything that's wrong, tell me straight away. Don't even hesitate, just tell me because we need this to be right. He was so brilliant. Absolutely loved him to be. Good to hear, good to hear. We have another question. This is from listener Mark Vent. He says, I'm a big fan of the heist movie League of Gentlemen. I hear that Dougie is currently writing a script for an updated version. Is there anything he can share with us about the script or the film? Well, it, that is true. Uh, I, I wrote a script a few years ago that was lo loosely based on The League of Gentlemen, which is one of my favorite films, talking Clicks TV. And I, I wrote a script based roughly on that. Um, that was optioned quite quickly as it happens. And we are still financing that. Unfortunately, it's been caught up in this lockdown madness. A year ago, just after I'd finished writing In The Know, I'd been pressured for a long time to do something to do with the military because I spent 18 years in the Air Force. So you were in the Falklands, weren't you? 
I was in Fort, yeah, 38 yeah, years yeah. ago. Today I was on Ascension Island doing bombing type things. Well, celebrating oh, um, the Paris taking Goose Green. And I started, I thought, well, there's a novel in this. So uh, I'm literally two thirds through that novel at the moment, working on that novel. That's what I'm doing in between. I'm, I'm developing the most bizarre movie projects, two really bizarre movie projects at the moment. Nothing to do with football or anything to do with that. Very odd. The, the, not, the film went actually, we almost got it away last year. I'm going to tell this story and I don't care who, who knows it. Uh, we all almost had Gerard Butler in the lead. He was literally poised. And if we'd have done that, the, uh, people throw money at yeah, Gerard Butler, for God's sake. Yeah, I'm sure but uh, he went for another movie instead. I believe we've already approached the man we want now, which is a, a proper A-lister. It's the most brilliant story. I remember being in a hotel room with Gerard Butler for a while ahead of an interview, and he was going to be talking to a British, but particularly a Scottish audience. And he was thinking, how should I have my accent? Because he came in sounding American, because he lives in California, or he did then anyway. But he thought, they'll think I'm a complete idiot speaking like an American, so I should go back to how I used to sound. But then they'll think I'm putting it on to impress them. So he was trying to come up with some halfway house between Scottish and American. And what was he, what sort of an accent would he have had for your film? Oh, he's, he's a British officer. Listen, if Gerard Butler wants to do my movie, he can speak in what, he can speak in Swahili, <laughs> or like it. I would make it work, believe We me. have Scottish, we have Scottish people in the British Army. I mean, exactly. <laughs> Air Force, it's an Air Force story. Right, a question from Janice saying that you have said, apparently, that you tend not to mix with other writers. And she says, this surprises me as the consensus seems to be that crime writers, anyway, are a welcoming and supportive group of people. Do you prefer to work in isolation? Well, I guess you have to, to actually do the writing. Or would you like to become part of a wider writer community? Oh, that's an interesting question. Ironically, I have just become a member of the Crime Writers Association purely out of interest and to see if it would do me any good. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not just crime writers. I don't mix with any other writers because I don't know any. And I never go to literary events because I never get asked and I'm certainly not going to invite myself. Um, I've only ever been to one literary festival and I got myself invited to that. I'm not at the bottom end of the literary ladder. I'm the rubber bungs on the feet underneath. And that's my status in, in the hierarchy. And I'm quite happy with that. I just carry on doing what I'm doing. and We'll call you a key worker. That's what we'll call you, a key worker. Key worker. I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, I'm not, I don't tend to talk about writing too much because it presumes I know what I'm talking about. I never train to do it. All I know is what works for me. And I say to people, there's no way to write. There's just ways to write. And find what works for you and do it. And stick to it and and what I do works for me now if I was sitting on a panel with you know Ian Rankin and the like I would feel completely out of my depth and uh, and why would I put myself in a position where I'm going to look make myself look completely dim for a while you do seek that kind of acknowledgement and, and affirmation from within the world the publishing world but after a while when it doesn't come you just think you start to wonder, well, that's not fair. I'm just doing this and whatever. And then in the end, you think, just, just get on with it. You get on with it. But it rankles with me now, because I've been doing it for so long, that there are opportunities not being given to other people. Is it question time, Steve? 
yes, we've got our usual admin. We've got um, we've got a look at last episode's question, where um, John Rain, John Rain, author of Thunderbook and host of the Smirsh Pod James Bond podcast, he asked us if I remember correctly, which films starred two James Bonds. In other words, name the films in which two James Bonds appeared together. Now, I've had an answer from Craig P, who says that there's actually four, by the looks of it. Now, I think John suggested there were possibly two or three. Is that right, Paul? Can you remember? John said three. And, you know, I've just remembered we had another entry as well, which gave a different answer to what John gave us. Well, what Craig P gave us was that uh, David Niven, often a forgotten James Bond, of course, but he was uh, Sir James Bond in the original Casino uh, Royale. 67, yeah, the 67 Casino Royale. David Niven and uh, Roger Moore were in uh, four films together. King Thief in 1955, uh, Escape from Athena in 1979, um, The Sea Wolves in 1980, and The Curse of the Pink Panther in 1983 which kind of featured another Bond as well, because almost everyone in that film, um, that featured Peter Sellers, who was also in Casino Royale, as someone who was also pretending to be James Bond. So it's certainly four, possibly, yeah, well, certainly three, possibly four. Janice got the uh, the first one, didn't get The Curse of the Pink Panther, Sea Wolves or Escape. It's from, isn't it? I oh, know it's two, Escape 2, Athena. No right answers, I think. Well, I think John was right. I think it is technically three. But it's it could be yeah, four-ish if you bent the rules a little bit because of the Pink Panther. So. Yeah, but John's not getting a prize because he said the question. No one gets a prize. No one gets a prize on this show. No one wins anything. I was actually in a James Bond movie. Now, there's a story for you. It was one of the Piers Brosnan ones. He was driving a tank around somewhere or other. He took out statues and things like that. Yes, and... right. I was, um, I was doing a lot of extra work at that time. And we filmed in London. I was walking along. And, and then I was driving a car around. And uh, oh, the, the story eye. was... Have a golden eye the tank chase. And uh, they gave me this coat when I was walking around. They said, we need you in a long overcoat. So they put me in this long overcoat. And they said, that is James's coat. One of James's coats. So do not disappear with it. The first chance I got, I was off that set with this coat. <laughs> uh, yeah, some Bond Street um, long black overcoat. It was absolute nuts. It's in a charity shop now. Doing some good. Dougie, we need a question from you. Oh, my God. That, well, that would have been my question then, if you'd have said that. If you'd have told me that. What James Bond movie have you had? Or Vincent Regan. I like him. Oh, he was amazing. He, I mean, one of the things, when you're a writer, one of the things you hope for, when you're writing a script, you play that script out in your head. And very rarely does, when you're on set, very rarely does what happens in front of you compare to what you're imagined. And I was on a set with Vincent Regan and he was doing a particular scene where he had to be as menacing as any character could possibly be, purely by the way he spoke, uh, to the point where the character he was talking to literally shrunk before your eyes. And Vincent Regan performed this scene exactly how I'd imagined it when I was writing it. Absolutely exactly to the point where I had to walk out the room afterwards and started crying. It was absolutely astonishing. He is the most phenomenal actor and he's a phenomenal man. It was one of the best experiences I've ever had as a writer, to be honest, was that day. 
fantastic. Uh, in terms of questions, blimey, top dog. Um, I'll throw a different one at you. What was my favourite book as a kid? Ah. What was my favourite book as a kid? Fantastic. So what is what was your favourite book as a kid? Okay, well, if you think you know the answer, usual way of getting hold of us, contact us by email at uh, wed like a word, because, of course, we can't use the apostrophe, annoyingly, wed like a word at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, and we're at weed like a word, although, obviously, don't put your answer there, because you'll tell everyone else. So uh, we always like to hear from you. And there'll be details of this on our website, www.wedlikeaword.com. And I'm mentioning that just to give a thanks. We don't always thank everyone who helps us with this podcast. So a shout out to Kevin Lynch, who reminds me when we need to update things on the website so that it doesn't all crash. So thank you, Kevin Lynch. Dougie, what's the, um, the most recent book? you've read that you've really enjoyed well there's two i'm i I'm, i've just read a book reread a book called vulcan 607 by um roland white which is about the vulcan raids in the falklands which is you know what i was in involved with uh, and i'm currently rereading the first prime suspect book by linda leplant the pure reason being uh, is because i found my kindle after ages and when i switched it on it was the first book on there it's just a great story. It's one of my favourite TV dramas ever. She's a great writer. Great book. Well, I think that's just about it, don't you, Paul? Yep. But well, have I upset enough people, do you think? We'll find out. <laughs> We've come to the end of this episode. Thank you very much, Dougie Brimson, for talking to us on We'd Like a Word. You're very welcome. It's been most enjoyable. Yeah, it's been very refreshing. I, j- I just think the working class writers issue is a massive issue. And it's not just for blokes, I and mean, blokes are my thing, obviously, but for, for women as well. There's a lot of women who are writing out there who, who need to be given that opportunity or who want to get into publishing and haven't got that opportunity and need to be given it. And if you're going to have that debate, then involve the people who are doing it, involve the working class community, and not just leave it up to the same middle classes to just kind of play lip service to something and in the end nothing will ever change can't afford that you can't afford to ostracize an entire you know class and a massive market because publishing ultimately is about making money and there's money to be made and i um, if anything i'm proving that there's money to be made and we've talked about it on this episode of we'd like a word thanks very much for listening dougie brimson i'm paul waters and i'm stephen colgan And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word. Mm